Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, listeners of the History of Byzantium podcast. This is Zach Twomley here from When Diplomacy Fails. In my podcast, I look at how wars are prevented or how they are caused through diplomacy. Diplomacy can mean a very different thing in different eras, and I often find it really interesting how wars are viewed or how they're begun by either side, depending on the era in question. As far as the Byzantine era goes, well, those guys were pretty much surrounded on all sides, weren't they? so they had to do a hell of a lot of diplomacy to keep their state ticking along. As the years progress, and as the Byzantines try different and more underhanded terms of diplomacy, as their situation gradually worsens, I feel like the history gets more and more interesting. And that's just one of the many reasons why you should be listening, and should continue listening, to a history of Byzantium. Thanks guys, and enjoy the show. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 68, Leo III. In recent episodes we've seen how civil war racked the Byzantine Empire for 20 years after the exile of Justinian II. Today we meet our seventh and final emperor of this period, the man who will take on the task of facing down the imminent siege of Constantinople, Leo III. Unlike most of the emperors we've covered, we actually have a fair amount of information about Leo's life. But unfortunately, we're faced with just as many problems with our sources as usual. We'll come back to them later. Leo's original name was Conon, which obviously tempted me to name this episode Conon the Barbarian. But cringing aside, Leo was not only of Roman stock, but was probably from a well-off family. He was born around 685 in Syria, in a town which you can read on the map as Germanicia, but is certainly pronounced differently. It's a border city, not far from Cilicia, and it would have been captured by the Arabs in about 645. And then throughout the latter half of the 7th century, it would have been a military base for the Caliphate's army, or at least a barracks town. Arab soldiers would regularly have come through there on their way to invading Byzantium. 
Leo's family were Roman Christians and quite possibly Monophysites. And young Conon presumably spent time around the Arab soldiers and picked up some Arabic on the way. During Justinian II's first reign, the Roman army was ordered to cross the border to put pressure on Abd al-Malik while he was dealing with a civil war. Part of the emperor's strategy was to collect former Romans and transplant them into imperial territory. You'll remember the same principle being applied to Slavs who were shipped into Anatolia. Conon's family were one of those uprooted by Roman soldiers and eventually settled in Thrace, not far from Anchialis. Whether this was a positive thing is highly debatable. Leo's family were now living in the Christian Empire, but in a very insecure part of it, given the potential for Bulgar raids. Leo was a young man of high ambition, and made the most of his geographical position when the opportunity arose. In 705, Turville and Justinian II came marching past Leo's farm on their way to Constantinople. The 20-year-old knew that the armies needed feeding, and so he raced at once to find the exiled emperor and pledged him 500 sheep to aid his campaign. If this number of sheep is anywhere near accurate, it would suggest Leo's family had money. Justinian looked very kindly on this show of support and invited Leo to join his entourage, eventually giving him the title of Spatharius, or Swordbearer, one of those imperial titles we discussed during the end of the century episodes. And again, for Leo to rise so quickly suggests he had something of a Roman education. This is where things become more complicated. Once safely back in the palace, Justinian found a job for Leo to do. He dispatched him to Lazica to try and coerce the various peoples there back into the Byzantine orbit. Apparently, the Lazican kingdom had lost control of its northern territories, including the Abasgian people, and the emperor wanted to shore up his ally so that he could call on them to make counter-raids against the Arabs. However, the story which comes down to us is filled with problems. For a start, it suggested that Justinian quickly turned against Leo, fearing his ambitious nature, which sounds like a tale created in retrospect after Leo had become emperor. It also fits the Justinian II is a monster trope, because the emperor is said to have sent Leo to the North Caucasus, and deposited a large sum of money in the treasury of the port city of Phasis. Find it on the map. Leo's mission was to contact the Alan tribes living north of the Abasgians and offer them the cash to cow the people to their south. This would bring the Abasgians to heel, they would agree to Roman overlordship, and their soldiers and cash could eventually be used against the caliphate. However, once Leo had begun the trek north, the emperor had the money removed and sent word to the Alans that Leo's promises would not be fulfilled. It all sounds needlessly complicated and duplicitous, but without it, the rest of Leo's story doesn't make much sense. The future emperor made a very favourable impression on the Alans, who agreed to protect him even when they discovered that no payoff awaited them. Leo was forced to live amongst the natives for several years, unable to pass safely back to Roman territory. Eventually he got word that about 300 imperial soldiers 
were not far away. They were living in the mountains like brigands after they'd fled an Arab attack in Armenia. The Alans kindly supplied him with some snow boots and an escort, and he made his way through the winter-hugged mountains to link up with his fellow Romans. Leo took control of this small group, but still didn't feel strong enough to safely cross hostile territory back to a Roman port. So he entered negotiations with a local tribe, the Apsilians, hoping they might help him reach the sea. Their leaders had already submitted to the caliphate and were therefore very reluctant to deal with the Romans. However, Leo tricked them into thinking he represented a far larger force. He captured one of their forts through deception and burnt it to the ground. The Apsilians, fearing further Roman aggression, agreed to conduct Leo back to Phasis. It was now 7.13 and he was very relieved to hear that Justinian was no more and it was therefore safe to return home. Once there, Leo charmed the new emperor, Artemius the secretary, who eventually appointed him Stratigos of the Anatolikon theme. A major promotion for a man with a limited experience, suggesting that at least some of his biography was accurate. Although Artemius had been working in the palace during Justinian's reign, so perhaps he and Leo had known each other then, and rather than an appointment based solely on merit, Leo was someone the emperor knew and thought he could trust. Of course, Artemius may have come to regret this decision when Leo did not come to his rescue as the troops of the Obsicion besieged him during the summer of 715. The Arabs were invading every year, so Leo had had his hands full. But it seems like his decision to abandon his patron was deliberate. With emperors coming and going, and the Arabs making ever more threatening moves, it wouldn't take too much imagination for Leo to convince himself that he should, nay, he must, take the job of emperor himself. It would not be seen as a selfish power grab by the men of the eastern armies. They had spent 20 years taking a battering from the Muslims, while other troops had been amusing themselves, installing their own men on the throne, and reaping the rewards. Leo began negotiations with his fellow eastern commander Artavasdus, the Stratigos of the Armenia Khan. They would eventually agree to overthrow the new emperor, Theodosius the tax collector, and install Leo in his place. That brings us up to the end of last week's episode. It's the closing months of 715, and Theodosius the tax collector has been reluctantly installed in the palace. We know almost nothing about his time in office, though it's possible that he began work on a peace treaty with Turville. With the Arabs readying their invasion, the Byzantines desperately needed good relations with their neighbours. There may even have been unofficial recognition of a formal border between the Roman Empire and the Bulgar Khanate. The idea of a recognised border is controversial from an imperial perspective, because to officially acknowledge a boundary would be to give up on Roman claims to the whole of the Balkans. It might sound foolishly arrogant given that imperial control had long ago slipped from most of the peninsula. But of course, giving up on territory is a major step. 
as long as you don't admit that something is no longer yours, then you will forever have a legal pretext for campaigning there. It was not really in the interests of Byzantium to admit that the Bulgars now controlled territory south of the Danube. But such was the impressive military performance of the Bulgars and the desperate state of the Romans that such agreements were seriously discussed. When spring 716 arrived, Maslama's force began the first push toward an actual invasion of the Roman Empire. The general Suleiman, not to be confused with the caliph of the same name, crossed the Tauruses and marched toward Leo's headquarters, the city of Amorium. Leo was not home, but the Arabs knew all about him and had heard that he was now in opposition to the sitting emperor. This presented an opportunity to further divide the Romans, and so Suleiman surrounded Amorium and had his men yell, Hail Emperor Leo! Hail Emperor Leo! at the defenders of the city. Suleiman sent word to Leo that he and his boss Maslama would like to talk to him about helping him realise his ambition. Leo sent a letter back quickly saying, If you've come to talk peace, then why are you besieging my city? Suleiman replied, come here and talk to me and I will break off the siege. Leo came, but with his bodyguard, and allowed himself to be placed under a loose kind of house arrest by the Arab general. It seems like the idea would be that Leo would become king of the Romans, but then open the gates of Constantinople to the Arabs, who would then absorb the empire into the caliphate. It would have been initially a similar occupation to the one the Arabs had installed in Armenia, but presumably a large Muslim garrison would have held New Rome and then reinforcements and perhaps settlers would begin to arrive just as they had done in Khorasan in Persia. Leo was being offered the chance to become a client king, and of course he would be saving thousands of lives by avoiding the unpleasant sacking, slaughter and deportation that would inevitably come if the Arabs attacked in force. Suleiman's army was now camped waiting for Maslama's army to arrive and agree a plan of action. But Suleiman's men were agitated by all this lounging around. They came on campaign to get rich and the Anatolian countryside was just sitting there unmolested. Leo, meanwhile, was playing Suleiman. One day he told his guards that he wanted to go hunting, but while out on the hunt he slipped away with his men. Disappearing through the crags and valleys to where he knew he would be safe, he wrote to Suleiman saying he believed the general was trying to dishonourably seize him rather than make an honourable agreement. Frustrated by this, Suleiman allowed his men to begin ravaging the countryside, and Leo promptly gathered some forces of his own and installed a new garrison in Amorium that would be better able to protect the city. By this time, Maslama had crossed the Taurus Mountains with a very large army and was on the march to Amorium. Several cities in Cappadocia just opened their doors for his men. They had no will to resist anymore, and perhaps thought that peaceful incorporation into the caliphate was the best hope they had. Leo wanted to keep up the pretense of negotiations, so he wrote to Maslama giving his version of events, but indicating that he still wanted to become emperor and help the general take Constantinople. 
Maslama had planned to spend the winter in Amorium and so was furious to hear what had happened. Suspicious of Leo, he ordered him to come in person and make peace. Leo agreed, but deliberately sent another letter back, asking for a guarantee of his safety, the safety of his property, the safety of his household staff, and so on. He knew that this exchange of letters would eat up time, and as the summer was wearing on, Maslama's force had to keep travelling west to find enough food and fodder to sustain itself. Maslama passed by Amorium and entered the territory of the Thracesian theme. Now safely out of the Anatolikon, and clearly not going to reach Constantinople this year, Leo turned north and marched towards the capital himself. Leo made his way toward Nicomedia, where he and Artavasdos prepared for a potential showdown with the Obsikian troops. However, once at the city, he discovered that Theodosius's son was inside with a detachment of his troops. Seizing the opportunity, the Anatolikon soldiers quickly overwhelmed the defenders and captured the city. Leo did the boy no harm, but sent word to Constantinople that he wanted to negotiate the best solution to the empire's crisis. Though everyone in the palace knew what this meant, no one seems to have had strong objections. Least of all the emperor. Theodosius was nothing but relieved to hand the burdens of office to someone else. And it was clear to his other advisers that the empire needed a general right now, and Leo was as good a choice as any. Theodosius and his son were given safe passage to Ephesus, where they would retire peacefully to a monastery. Theodosius was still middle-aged and had been in the wrong place at the wrong time, ruling the empire for just short of two years. When spring came, Leo crossed the Bosphorus with his men and entered the capital. On March 25th, 717, in the Hagia Sophia, Conan the Syrian would become emperor Leo III. The first Leo was the man who began this podcast series. The second was his grandson who died in infancy, leaving Zeno as sole ruler. Our Leo cemented his alliance with Artavasdos by marrying him to his daughter Anna. Artavasdos was to become Curopalates, the man in charge of the imperial palace, during the siege. But there was no time to celebrate their elevation. As Leo had settled into winter quarters opposite the capital, Maslama and Suleiman took their rest only a few miles down the road. Whether he had been bamboozled by Leo or not, Maslama cut deep into the Thracesian theme as autumn approached and captured the major cities of Sardis and then Pergamum. The son of Abdel Malik spent the winter there planning for the capture of Constantinople. Meanwhile, in Cilicia, a third Arab army was being prepared to sail the next spring. Well, before we wrap up today, let's talk about the sources. Do you know the story of Odysseus from the Iliad and the Odyssey? The man who came up with the idea of the Trojan horse and then spent 20 years trying to get home? Well, Leo's biography reads like a sort of reverse reflection of that story. Leo is left to wander alone through the Caucasus Mountains, trying to find a way home. He charms or outwits those he comes up against, and eventually, 
will slip into the major city, which he's destined to save during a great siege rather than destroy. I'm always suspicious of any story from ancient times with this much detail. When Procopius, say, is an eyewitness, it's easier to understand. But who is the source for the stories of Leo? As with Justinian II's adventures, you have to wonder if it's the emperor himself who recounted these tales to his biographer, or perhaps someone very close to him. It seems particularly suspicious that he's able to outmaneuver both Arab generals just when the empire needs him most. However, rather than dismiss those stories out of hand, we discover two things which give us pause. The first is that the Arab sources, admittedly written many years later, agree with these tales, or at least the spirit of them, which is that Leo's deceptions play a major role in the upcoming siege of Constantinople. Now, perhaps the Arab historians favoured tales of Roman duplicity over Muslim failure to explain away their defeat, but the picture they paint does not flatter their own side. And then secondly, the Byzantine writers Nicephorus and Theophanes are accused by modern historians of actually underplaying Leo's role in saving the capital. Why? Because of the upcoming battle with iconoclasm. Leo is the emperor who will begin the attack on the use of icons. Both Nicephorus and Theophanes were passionately pro-icon and generally portray those who attacked icons in negative ways. So it's hard to see them exaggerating stories about Leo in a hugely positive way. All we can conclude is that the emperor was known for his cunning and there doesn't seem much doubt that his varied CV indicates someone with a sharp mind and shrewd instincts. Whether he traversed the snows against all odds, or made fools of the best Arab generals, we aren't quite sure. But the Byzantines had the right man at the helm, just when they needed him. Thanks to the end of the century episodes coming when they did, and all the new names I've thrown at you in this 20 years of chaos, I'm not sure the sense of impending doom has been adequately conveyed. When looked at from a longer perspective, the tide of history must have seemed to many to be about to sweep the Byzantines away. In the 640s, the Arabs had taken the eastern provinces. By the 670s, Muawiyah was banging on the doors of New Rome, poised to launch an invasion. Civil wars had saved the Romans for a time, but now Africa was gone, Armenia was gone, Cilicia was all but gone, key fortresses had been taken, key cities sacked. The army was not capable of winning battles in either Anatolia or Thrace. Seven emperors have come and gone. The state was collapsing. The people of Cappadocia had surrendered. Once Constantinople was taken, it was pretty clear that resistance would cease. The only thing left for the Arabs to do was to take New Rome. Next time, join me for one of the most important battles in world history. The Arab siege of Constantinople. We saw today some of uh, Leo's duplicitous diplomacy, and we'll certainly have more of that when we return. But if you're interested in learning more about the history of diplomacy then do check out Zach Twamley's podcast, When Diplomacy Fails. Zach covers all the details of the breakout of the great conflicts in history. He has some epic coverage of the First World War available and the Thirty Years' War 
and I'm sure much to come. Check it out on iTunes or at wdfpodcast.blogspot.co.uk. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.